Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, Dad demonstrates his usual wisdom, erudition, and unwavering commitment to the Eighth Commandments and putting the best construction on everything, while <laughs> I prove to be a gadfly and a pipsqueak, rolling my eyes and blowing raspberries of irritation. That's right. Today, it's the generation gap like you haven't seen it since 1968, coming to you live from Queen of the Sciences. Dad, what can provoke such divergent opinions from two closely related Lutheran theologians who otherwise share so many convictions in common? Well, I thought it would be good for you to read some Paul Tillich, and so I asked you to read um, his 1952 book, The Courage to Be. You know, Dad, uh, we, of course, talked about Tillich last time with the Nazi addresses and, um, or I mean, the challenge to the Germans in under the Nazi regime, and then following this up with the courage to be. And I want to say, I, I will say later, I've read almost no Tillich in my life up to this point, and um, that, was, that was deliberate, <laughs> but I finally broke the dam and went through with it. And as, as listeners heard, I did not dislike the addresses to the Germans. I had, you know, a few critiques, but basically was favorable towards them. So I was a little bit primed to be sympathetic to the courage to be. And I have to tell you, I could barely get through this. It frustrated and aggravated me so much. (sighs) Sarah, I think he pushed pushed, uh, your anxiety button. The courage not to chuck the book across the room because it was a library <laughs> book and I didn't have the right to destroy it. But I know, I mean, I I know that Tillich has been important to you at points in your life. So I think what we're going to try to do in this episode is, as I alluded to, give you the chance to put the best construction on Tillich and why he ha- was important for you. And I will try to interface in a less obnoxious way than is my gut level reaction. Thank you for sowing such immense restraint in advance. Now, um, I I think for the sake of our listeners, I just want to say briefly this, that the Tillich of the radio speeches to the Germans during the Nazi war war period represents Tillich's last desperate uh, belief in the Western Christian tradition which he was challenging to recognize the evil of Nazism and to stand up against it. And I think the shift in mood by 1952, when Tillich uh, publishes this little book, The Courage to Be, is the transition to the mood of absolute meaninglessness, that the world has fallen apart, that the West has lost its story, that the Christians did not stand up to resist Nazism, and the world has unraveled, and there's a threat of nuclear annihilation, and everything seems to be crumbling into ashes, just like the runes uh, that covered Germany. So this is kind of the transition between the earlier Tillich uh, and the later Tillich. And I just wanted to say that that's kind of the the point of the juxtaposition of these two um, bodies of work that we're, we're comparing in the sequence. Now, 
I bought the book, the 1976 edition, and I signed it into my library in December of 1977. And I noticed looking at it that it is the 43rd printing of this book. So just imagine, uh. in 25 years, it has been reprinted 43 times. Uh, it spoke to the, the needs of the hour. Now, I remember reading it, I think probably in 78 or 79, during a seminar I took on Tillich's theology at Union Seminary. And Sarah, I'm telling you the truth, I got really excited, like like watching the finish of a racehorse on which you've bet, <laughs> in a, you know, or something, uh, as I drew near to the conclusion, eager to learn how Tillich's power of being, overcoming non-being, was going to reconcile the divergent courage to be as oneself with the courage to be as a part. See the difference between the courage uh, to be an individual and the courage to be a, a participant in a group or something. How do you reconcile those two? And the whole book is pointing forward to what Tillich is hinting is the courage of absolute faith, which he says transcends the god of theism, which is really an idol, a being alongside other beings. So I was, I was like with bated breath waiting to get to this dramatic conclusion. Wow. So that, that really jazzed you. Because when I was getting to the end, I was the, the, my eyes were rolling so fast. It's amazing they didn't just roll out of my head. Well, I guess that is a generational difference because coming when I was reading this, you know, after the 1960s and in the 1970s on the cusp of the election of Ronald Reagan, um, you know, I, we were thinking, too, that, you know, the, the nuclear arms race was going to accelerate into catastrophic proportions with Reagan's election. I mean, you know, we were, I guess, still really um, confronting the power of non-being in Tillich's language. Mm. Well, I'm going to decide that it was while you were reading Tillich that you failed to notice that little me wandered out of the apartment and down to the lobby of our apartment building during the fire drill. And uh, because you were so engrossed <laughs> in the book that you didn't realize your your little girl had gone missing for some time. And I remember I came back upstairs and said, Daddy, why didn't you go outside for the fire drill? And you're like, there was a fire drill? No, I said, I said, Sarah, why did you set off the fire alarm? <laughs> no, you didn't. You said, let's not tell mommy about this, shall we? <laughs> yes, I, I guess being en engrossed in reading is a, a occupational hazard, especially when you're a parent of a toddler. I suppose, I suppose. We won't talk about the time that I put the key in the electric socket. So anyway, moving right along. Yeah, and I would say in parallel with my reaction to Rudolf Bultmann, and someday I'm going to make you read his theology of the New Testament, and we'll do a podcast on that. But I would say similarly with Bultmann, uh, I've, I, I have been moved away from the solutions Tillich had to the problems he raised. But I don't turn away so much from the analysis itself. And I, I admit, 
at that young age coming out of the absolute trauma of the Missouri Synod's fundamentalist turn. Tillich, you know, with his astonishing erudition and his effortless uh, analyses of all sorts of intellectual trends, as he was a model of an intellectual who captured my affections and inspired emulation. So, Sarah, I would just say this. One must not despise old friends, even if life has taken us in different directions. Well, fair enough. I can honor that. Thank you very much. I think one of the easy ways to dismiss Tillich is to say he's nothing but an existentialist. And it's true in his systematic theology, he calls existentialism the good fortune of Christian theology. Um, But I think that's not really fair to Tillich. In reality, he's talking about the existentialism of the 1950s. Now, this was first theorized in Heidegger's book, Being in Time. And even though the later Heidegger kind of renounced that or moved beyond it, probably because of his fall into Nazism for a period. In any case, the theory that Heidegger put forth was popularized in Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, and reduced basically to the aphorism, existence precedes essence. In other words, you are thrown absurdly into the world and you wake up to the fact that you exist um, just as you wake up to the fact that you were simultaneously hurtling towards death, towards non-being. Now, what are you going to do with your life? Existence is prior to essence. That is to say, it's up to you to make sense of your existence, to find meaning for your life. That's Sartre's existentialism. Now, Tillich actually thinks that this line of thought is a dead end. And, uh, you know, you've heard me in previous podcasts say that it um, it ends up in contemporary postmodernism which is nothing but the modern project of the sovereign self, disillusioned of its own meta-narratives in in fascism or socialism or democratic capitalism, just disillusioned. These meta-narratives have lost their meaning. And thus, we are forced, modern, postmodern people are forced to continue the very project of the sovereign self surreptitiously. Um, you know, they just got to figure out other ways to assert the sovereignty of ourselves in a world that doesn't hang together anymore. And uh, even beyond where I think Sartre was going with this is that they deny there is any such thing as an essence, that essence is infinitely mutable and malleable. Actually, even to assert that anyone has an essence is now considered an act of aggression. Well, I suppose it's an act of aggression if you assert essence where sex is concerned, um, where if you try to deny an essence where race is concerned, then that becomes its own its own um, perceived act of aggression. But I, I just want to flag here that that um, existence essence question, I think, is 
troubling because, um, you know, Tillich represents more of the, the left wing version version of it, but a right wing version like like a Werner Ehlert represents a kind of denial of of uh, the law of God as it relates to the essence of what it means to be human. So to me, this these are all sort of mutually entangled problems that arise out of out of this 20th century Lutheranism. Yeah, sure. Sure. I think that's exactly right. The, we're, the, that's the whole point. Uh, essentialist schemes of, 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 of overarching meaning have utterly collapsed. They have no credibility anymore. All you have is the absurd fact of your existence. And when Sartre says existence precedes essence, all he means is, all right, now it's up to you to create your own essence. And that's the sovereignty of the self asserting itself under postmodern conditions. Which, uh, of course, and I, I just, sorry, I just have to say this. And, and Sartre says that as if nobody has a mother and a father. <laughs> this is this is going to be one of my issues with Tillich, too, is that this, you know, e- even if you uh, say that the modernist project of essentialism has collapsed, um, fine, but people are born into families and they have bodies and things happen to their bodies that it just, it's, it's so insanely brackets out so much of what it actually, of the existence of humans. I don't, uh, okay, I'll stop. Go on, go on. Tell us more about Tillich. I think that's absolutely true, Sarah. I think that's a very important point that um, um, actually, this is why I I constantly argue that we are patients before we are agents. And that uh, patiency is is a concept that Christian theology ought to use to talk about all the ways in which we are formed and thus empowered to be adult agents in our lives. Um, but let's go on. Okay. Uh, so when it comes to existentialism as a philosophy, Tillich sees it end, uh, as a dead end, and he predicts that it's going to result in hyper-individualism and correspondingly socially mass atomization so that they, the whole human race will be like sheep without a shepherd. And Tillich warns that this uh, creates the, the seedbed for new forms of authoritarianism that for shepherds to come along and say, follow me. Well, he was right about that. <laughs> yep. Yep. Strong men, charismatic strong men. Yep. So anyway, so what Tillich actually does is isolate the truth in the f- f- uh, mid-century philosophy of existentialism uh, in his version of the Christian doctrine of sinfulness. According to Tillich, humanity is alienated from its true being, which is its uh, uh, which he calls theonomy, being being. Uh, governed by the divine. And as a result of this estrangement from the rule of God, theonomy, as a result, um, the alienated human being is existentially, in its effectual existence, hounded by the inescapable dangers, threats of finitude, guilt, and meaninglessness. Those are the three categories in which he he analyzes the anxiety that afflicts modern people. It's like an update of sin, death, and the devil. 
Finitude, guilt, and meaninglessness. Right, right. Um, finitude would correspond to death. Guilt would correspond to sin and meaninglessness. Utter attacks of meaninglessness would, would correspond to the demonic. And Tillich thinks these, these, all these dimensions of existential estrangement coexist though he kind of associates the, the, these three, three threats or, or types of anxiety with historical epochs. So the threat of finitude he associates with the ancient church's anxiety about death and belief in the gift of eternal life as its solution. And he associates the moral threat of guilt and condemnation with the medieval and Reformation churches, and correspondingly with the Reformation doctrine of justification. But the modern threat of nihilism, of utter categorical meaninglessness, he associates with the post-World War II collapse of the great meta-narratives of Marxism, Leninism, of fascism, and of course, fertilic also democratic capitalism. It, all of these being follow-ups to the antecedent death of Western Christianity, symbolized by Nietzsche's pronouncement of the death of God. So Tillich considers this last expression of estrangement in meaninglessness or nihilism as the most radical. And he builds the analysis to this point, to that dramatic conclusion of the lectures on courage, when he pronounces upon the God beyond God, the God beyond theism. And as we shall see, this is Tillich's version of the theology of the cross. It is an existential analysis of the truth, of the crucified's cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There, have I in, uh, covered the basic thrust and gist of the book? Um, I, I'm sure you have. I, I have to admit some challenge taking it in because, as I said, my eyes were rolling so rapidly. Um, let, let me just <laughs> ask you about this schematic briefly, because um, I, just actually as, as an example of theological method, because this sort of thing is done quite a lot, like early church, finitude, death, medieval church, guilt, punishments, modern church, nihilism, meaninglessness. Um, and okay, like I can see it, but it just seems so tidy and overstated. You know, when when the Reformation starts, the the plague is not that far in recent memory, which wiped out what like a third of Europe's population. Right. And, you know, not long after the Reformation, we'll have the Thirty Years' War, which uh, wipes out an enormous percentage of Europe's population. So it's not like death was not an, an active fear surrounding them. Or if I think about like modern Western culture now, I think people are obsessively afraid of guilt. I, I don't see anyone who's actually actively pursuing their own interests, except for a very small number of sociopaths, I think people are desperately afraid of not being righteous and are constantly trying to prove that they are innocent and on the right side of history. So I don't know. I, I just like, uh, it, it just seems 
handy. And I know that um, theological thinking that is trying to also incorporate historical thinking uses these schematics, but I'm highly doubtful, I have to say at this point. Yeah, and I think you're right about that. But I think Tillich is careful to caution that he thinks these three forms of estrangement uh, coexist, uh, that they're not, they can't really be separated, but they can just be kind of historically illustrated or illuminated as uh, corresponding to these epochs, as leading motifs, and, and so forth. I, I think he's, he saves himself from total vulnerability to that criticism. All right, now I'd like to shift gears, because I have to acknowledge some debts here. Uh, I, I've reread this book, Courage to Be Now, more than 40 years later. And Sarah, I have to confess before the world... <laughs> culpa mea, culpa mea, culpa mea ipsissima. Uh, I have to acknowledge with some chagrin how Tillich actually seeded many analyses about the development of modern theology and philosophy that came to fruition in my own books, where I thought I was coming up with something original. No, 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 no. This is what Harold Bloom calls the anxiety of influence. Uh, every creative and intellectual wants to say something new, and they're terrified that they're just repurposing something that they read before. I, Even in my shorter lifespan, I have already had that experience of going back and reading something and being like, oh, is that where I got it from? How embarrassing. And I didn't e- even remember consciously enough to you know, acknowledge the debt. So I'm, I'm glad you have this opportunity, Dad, to clear yourself of guilt, since that is one of the three horsemen of your <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I want to own up to my guilt. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to scapegoat, and I'm not trying to deflect, <laughs> deflect okay. from my own culpability. Uh, but here, I mean, just reading this book, uh, there's several examples of Tillich's analysis that I find that I borrowed, and the first has to do with the legacy of the Hellenistic philosophy of Stoicism. You know, Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus, the Stoic philosophers. Um, And uh, Tillich writes, the Stoic has social and personal courage, which is a real alternative to the Christian message. Um, I remember that um, the late Senator John McCain was imprisoned in a North Vietnamese uh, prison for five years, I believe it was, um, before he was set free, will, along with all the other uh, pilots that were captured in the war in Vietnam. And he later was asked how he survived that imprisonment and torture that he experienced. And he re- replied that he had read Marcus Aurelius's meditations while at Annapolis Naval Academy and uh, had taken it to heart and he got through his imprisonment by reciting from memory passages from Marcus Aurelius's Stoic uh, meditations. Tillich points out that for the Stoics, the paradigm event was Plato's account of the death of Socrates. You know, that Socrates is unjustly condemned, and um, he has to commit suicide uh, by judicial order. 
and he courageously faces his death. He, he does not run away. He does not try to escape. And on the hours before his death, he has a great, a great discourse on the immortality of the soul, which leads to one parent, apparent proof of the immortality of the soul. At, and Socrates, this is an hour away from death. And when they get to this point and everybody's happy, the soul lives forever. And Socrates blows right through the argument and it all crumbles to pieces. And all of his friends are dejected. Socrates is going to die in an hour and our argument for the immortality of the soul has failed. What courage of Socrates to intellectually put the pin in that balloon and blow it up course, then he starts over and gets to a better solution, but that's besides the point. Um, <laughs> but Tillich points out that Plato's account of the death of Socrates took up the tragic heroism uh, in the narratives of Homer and made them rational and universal. These are the so-called consolations of philosophy. In the Stoic, they take the form of brave cosmic resignation. You know, yeah, the, the world's going to end someday. I'm going to end someday. Deal with it. And that, as opposed to the seemingly fantastic belief in cosmic salvation found in Christianity. So this is kind of, the Latin expression is amor fate, the love of one's destiny, the love of one's fate. And I, in some of my work, have traced this motif, Stoic motif, through 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 Cicero, um, and on to its revival in Spinoza, up to uh, the great philosopher of the Enlightenment, Immanuel Kant, who I kind of love surreptitiously to say, Kant insists on the courage to do one's duty, as the tsunami is about to sweep one to one's death, knowing that this tsunami knows nothing of what is happening, but I, mere mortal, am superior to it in knowing that I am about to die. As I said, philosophical consolation. That's interesting. You know, Stoicism is having a popular revival these days, um, I think, for people for whom fantastic salvation is a little too good to be true and um, not scientifically plausible looking for alternatives you know there, there I think there is enough of the thread of stoicism and Western civilization that it has a an alternate credibility which isn't entirely in every way hostile to Christian convictions but is doesn't require you to get involved in all this uh, particular uh, particularity and ridiculousness like you know dead Jewish carpenter comes back to life Right, exactly. Which is why I've tried to revive the category of the fabulous to find a new concept for dealing with the supernatural or miraculous uh, uh, aspects of the gospel, which I don't think can simply be uh, edited edited out as some forms of demythologizing want. I think they're kind of integral to the narrative. Uh, but that it's certainly an, an issue. It's certainly a problem. Um, I remember years ago when Stanley Fish had a literary debate with John Richard John Newhouse. Um, it was really a fascinating back and forth between these two. 
and Stanley Fish finally just said, Virgin birth? Really? Resurrection from the dead? Really? <laughs> and that was kind of the end of the debate. Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think like the, uh, and maybe this is what was helpful for you uh, coming out of a, a tradition that had taken a turn for the fundamentalist is that you cannot ask the fabulous to believed on be believed on the same terms that you ask the scientifically demonstrated to be believed. And I think a lot of um, um, conservative efforts to insist or demands uh, the virgin birth or the resurrection of articles of faith expects them to function as as the equivalent types of data as you know electrons moving along a wire to give us electricity or or you know the um, the expanding cosmos or something like that they're they're clearly not the same kind of thing and cannot be handled in the same way but then you have to make the case for there being a different category like you said the fabulous that has to be handled and encountered and experienced in a different way and that i think that's more where the the argument will end up lying now let me give a second example about my uh debts to tillich that i evidently unconsciously uh followed him and <laughs> things that i don't didn't remember in my first book, Paths Not Taken, I treated the early Renaissance as a revival of the Augustinian anthropological doctrine, holistic doctrine of desire. So rather than chopping up human beings into a number of faculties, uh, reason, uh, will, and uh, passion, that then had to be ordered and, in, and somehow uh, integrated you had a whole human being motivated in everything by its desire. As a result of this Augustinian revival in the early Renaissance, the burning question is not whether you love, but what you love. Is it really worthy of love? And uh, I located both Luther and Melanchthon in this uh, humanist stream of thought, this early Renaissance revival over against the rationalistic anthropology predominant in medieval scholasticism. And I find encouraged to be Tillich making exactly the same analysis. And then he really hits the nail on the head, and I followed him in this too. He writes, the later Renaissance broke away from this holistic doctrine of the human being motivated by its loves and created a new scientific essentialism. In Descartes, the anti-existential bias, he writes, is most conspicuous. The existence of man in this world is put into brackets. Man becomes pure consciousness, a naked epistemological subject. The world, including man's psychosomatic being, becomes an object of scientific inquiry and technical management. Man, in his existential predicament, disappears namely his existence in time and space, and are under the conditions of finitude and estrangement. Man, that is spot on. That is exactly what has happened. And I, I mean, at, at least I have followed this argument that I evidently learned from Tillich many years ago. Well, and as an analysis, you're right, it is spot on. And I would say what he's seeing there in 1952 has only accelerated in its efforts ever since, especially with the rise of new kinds of, of tech, both um, 
pharmaceutical tech and digital tech, this this uh, man as an object of his own scientific inquiry and technical management, and just bracketing out things like um, the existential predicament <laughs> and space and time and all these meanings. Those are just problems that you are supposed to eliminate. They're not at all central to what it be- means to be human. Right. And um, of course, a lot of people turn Rene Descartes into the quintessential villain of modern thought. Uh, but I don't think a lot of people really grasp what his what his fundamental error is, um, namely the superordination of the thinking thing over the embodied or extended thing. And this, of course, carries over into human attitudes to our, towards our own selves, where I get to thinking that my physical body is infinitely malleable and I can make it into whatever I want it to be, whatever is in my head. That is my sovereign right as a free human individual to transform myself, my body, into what my head imagines I should be. And then you discover the hard facts of biology. Right. That, that, will, that will bring existentialism back to us, I think, actually. Yep. For Tillich, you know, you know, this is really important. Existential is not the same as existentialist. For Tillich, the term existential refers to our adult awareness when we wake up from our dreaming childlike innocence to the fact that as I am body, in German Dasein, which is literally, in English, being there, being somewhere, somewhere in space and time, I am body which will someday die, cease to exist, namely not be there anymore. And, of course, that gives rise to anxiety. And every time I attempt to cope with this anxiety about my finite existence, I only reproduce the anxiety in new ways. So, fertilic existential means my finite existence is a problem for me. That's different from existentialism, which is I get to decide what my essence will be. Yeah, that's an important distinction. All right, so Tillich is not guilty of, of being a stupid existentialist. We agree? <laughs> I suppose. One more example of what I uh, uh, learned from Tillich and forgot about. Uh, in a book I co-authored with the philosopher Brent Adkins on the French philosopher Deleuze, I again became preoccupied with Nietzsche and in the process, I found a new appreciation of the, as Deleuze puts it, the Christ of the philosophers, uh, namely Spinoza, and his doctrine of conatus, Latin term for the, um, the, the, the purpose of power of a human body, conatus, or maybe more easily, Augustinian desire. So, and this discovery in Spinoza led me in turn for me to a new and no longer polemical understanding of Nietzsche's infamous phrase, the will to power, which Tillich unpacks in this book, um, saying it's neither an act of will nor is it an act of domination, which is the polemical interpretation of it. But rather it's a 
Nietzsche's will to power is his attempt to retrieve dynamically Spinoza's Conatus. It's not the epitome of the sovereign self in the Cartesian sense that we were just dis- criticizing, but rather simply the body's delight in its powers. Let me say that again. It's the body's delight in its powers. Deleuze has a, um, a statement about Spinoza, I believe, if my memory's right. No one knows what a body can do. No one knows what its powers are unless you go out and experiment. And when you experiment with your powers, you it, it's delightful. Wow, I can do that. You see that most delightfully in um, in little children. In in some sense, little kids are physicists. They are discovering the laws of physics firsthand by their bodily engagement with the world and finding out about balance and falling down and climbing up and grabbing things and moving things and tipping over cups of water and watching it all spill out and watching mom go and mop it up again. It, and it's just, you know, the sheer joy of, of being in a little body and figuring out what to do with it. And I can tell the uh, listeners right now that I am dealing for a year now with sciatica. And at some points, it has reduced me to the state of being a toddler again. Oh. Oh, yes. And the other day, yeah, the other day, we I had to walk down a hill, and your brother took my arm and held my hand as, and walked me down the hill, just like I was a little child. And so... The being deprived of the body's delight and its powers has really come home to me, the truth of this, that all of us enjoy our body and its powers, and all of us are humiliated and hurt when our bodies bodies begin to fail us in some ways. Oh, dear. Back to patiency again. Back to patiency again, yes. Okay, well, in The Courage to Be, Tillich has detailed treatments of these two philosophers, Spinoza, whom I think of as a modern Stoic, and uh, and Nietzsche and the so-called will to power. And what we learn then is that their doctrine of the body's delight in its powers is what really undergirds his own doctrine of the power of being overcoming non-being in all that exists. So to put the point of Spinoza and Nietzsche formally, ontologically, the power of being overcoming non-being is the secret to all that exists. That's the ontological truth. So what does that mean for human persons? The courage to be existentially entails facing up to the threat of non-being in its various forms of death, guilt, and meaninglessness. How? By assuming these negations into one's own act of being, by which they are defeated. So you courageously face the fear, face the anxiety, face the threat, and you say, I can overcome this by absorbing it, by assimilating it. That takes courage because the threat, these are really dangers and they really can overpower you. But the courage to be entails facing them and absorbing them. And so you see such courageous acts of being are anything but the modern doctrine of the sovereign self. 
but Tillich thinks of this as an alternative uh, to the sovereign self of modernity that has its roots in Descartes. I have to say the alternative is a bit hazy to me. Why is this definitely not the sovereign self? This this seems like he's he's calling upon people to to uh you know uh, grasp being and engage in the fight against non-being and so establish and create themselves. How is it not how is that not the same thing? Just theologically papered over. Because Tillich then concludes this analysis by affirming asserting that the courage to be is not and cannot be self-bootstrapping. He says you cannot will your courage. You do not have the power to be in your own possession, to be utilized on demand. Rather, he says, you must be grasped by the divine power of being overcoming non-being, which literally n-encourages you, which literally encourages you. Now, so Tillich thinks existentially you have to tap into what's really the case ontologically. Um, you, you, you're willing your own courage. You're trying to demand yourself to be courageous will fail you. Rather, you have to wake up to, you have to be grasped by the divine power of being overcoming non-being in all that exists. And, of course, he thinks this divine grasping is universally operative in all that exists, whether we, have, we are conscious of it or not. So this sounds to me like a 20th century paraphrasing of the classic Lutheran paradigm of first you you uh, expose to people their terrible situation vis-a-vis the law and get them really worked up about how awful things are and how they have no power to change it in themselves. And then you deliver the gospel promise that there is one outside of yourself who has done and will do it all for you. And all you need to do is latch on to what is given to you and then all will be well. Well, I tell like as a Lutheran. I mean, yes, I think that's true. Okay. Okay. All right. I mean, but it sounds like uh, as much as anything, then the courage to be is a kind of proto-evangelion of laying out for modern people for whom Christianity has been discredited. Like, well, here's what your actual situation is, but he's doing it all in, in this parallel language so it isn't too obviously Christian. I mean, that's how it reads to me. Yeah, I think I, that's one way of reading it. I think that's right. And I think for Tillich, courage is the way existentially to paraphrase the real meaning of faith. Um Abraham leaves his homeland and goes to a land he knows not what that God will show him. That takes courage, right? And so forth. I mean, we could go all through the whole analysis. So courage is Tillich's kind of paraphrase of the Lutheran doctrine of faith. I want to make one more connection before we start drawing to a conclusion. I taught Augustine's Confessions for many years to undergraduates and after many readings had finally got through my thick skull, that (laughs) Augustine's entire account of the self and its God was based upon a kind of primal intuition that he explicitly names. It is better to be than not to be. That Tillich's entire argument is premised upon this act of evaluation, is better to be than not to be. Now, I'm not sure that classical Buddhists would agree with this axiom of Augustine's. 
And I think the epidemic of deaths of despair in contemporary Western culture might also speak against it. But it struck me in rereading Courage to Be that Augustine's evaluative act lies at the heart of Tillich's ontology. He thinks like Augustine that whether we are conscious of God or not, wanting to be rather than not be, we in fact participate in God's creativity, which is the ever new act of the power of being overcoming non-being. And I think that insight leads us to the most interesting parts of the book theologically, to which I think we should turn in conclusion. Okay, let's do it. Okay, um, I mentioned that for Tillich, the, the contemporary experience of meaninglessness uh, represented by philosophical existentialism and corresponding theological doubt is, now I'm quoting from the book, it is the most important and most disturbing question of the quest for the courage to be. Why? The anxiety of meaninglessness undermines what is still unshaken, in the anxiety of fate and death and of guilt and condemnation. In the anxiety of guilt and condemnation, doubt has not yet undermined the certainty of an ultimate responsibility. I will face the divine judge some day. Of that, I'm certain. So we are threatened by the danger of hell, but we are not destroyed. If, however, doubt and meaninglessness prevail, we experience Tillich writes an abyss in which the meaning of life and we could say also death and the truth of ultimate responsibility disappear. In the despair of doubt and meaninglessness, both are swallowed by non-being. So, you're right, Sarah, just like a good Lutheran, Lutheran um, revival preacher, Tillich has really uh, up the ante and exposed us to the depths of our predicament. Now, you, this is where I think maybe you don't think his answer to this radical predicament is so great. His answer is what he calls, quote, absolute faith, uh, which is paradoxically the courage of despair, the courage which accepts the state of meaninglessness. And he points out, I'm quoting again, it is not an answer if it demands the removal of the state of meaninglessness, for that is just what cannot be done. Whoever is in the grip of doubt and meaninglessness cannot liberate himself from despair, but he asks for an answer which is valid within and not outside the predicament of his despair, end quote. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, the, I, I agree that the, this is something that people really face. Um, I'm not convinced that it's only a modern thing, but we don't have to go over that again. Um, and yeah, people people need to find a way to decide to carry on living when it, you know all the hope and joy and meaning of living is gone. Uh, fair enough. Um, I don't know, but then to to invoke absolute faith and the courage of despair, I, I don't see how this isn't just kind of Stoicism warmed over. All right, here's how it's not Stoicism warmed over. And indeed, I think it's kind of, again, one of my debts to Tillich 
What he writes here is perhaps the root of my own critique of the doctrine of divine simplicity. Because Tillich says absolute faith leads us to the notion of God beyond God, which reveals the power of being overcoming non-being as the very divine life operative in all that exists. That's his that's what absolute faith consists in. Then I'm quoting Tillich again. Such an understanding is possible only if one accepts the view that non-being belongs to being, that being could not be the ground of life without non-being. The self-affirmation of being without non-being would not even be self-affirmation, but an immovable self-identity. Nothing would be manifest, nothing expressed, nothing revealed. But non-being drives being out of its seclusion, forces it to affirm itself dynamically, end quote. Now, you might recognize in this, and as Tillich acknowledges, sources in Hegel and contemporary vitalist and process theologians. And he also says, and I'm quoting, theology has done the same whenever it took the idea of the living God seriously most obviously in the Trinitarian symbolization of the inner life of God. So clarify what he even means by non-being here, because this sort of reminds me of our discussion of Anselm's monologian, where Anselm trips him up for himself up for a long time trying to figure out if nothing, which is used semantically as a noun, is actually a thing. And then, well, how can nothing be a thing? And so what... What, what does Tillich actually mean by non-being here? If what he's trying to do is open up something like freedom or contingency, um, I can understand that, this idea of, of uh, you don't solve the problem of existential um, uncertainty by creating an essentialist absolutism that en- encloses natures in themselves and makes everything fixed and determined. But I, I don't I don't see that you would have to make non-being the equivalent of something like freedom or contingency. Or am I completely missing the boat here? Well, I, I think I think basically Tillich here is thinking with Hegel. Non-being is simply the logical power of negation, which is the prod uh, for every uh, fresh and re- renewed and enriched act of being. Um, when I recognize that I am not yet competent in the theology of Paul Tillich, and that negation strikes at my um, so my self-esteem and my understanding, and and threatens my delight in my powers, uh, bodily powers uh, or intellectual powers, I am prodded on to enrich myself by further study. Uh, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, but it's it seems wildly overblown to call that non-being. I you don't, I don't yet I don't know t- you you don't yet know Tillich's theology. That's non for you. That's non-being. That's not there for you, and you recognize. Okay, but that. why why is that non-being and not potential or freedom or contingency or a, a movement through time? I, I, it I don't is. It's all. What is at it, stake? The root of all those things, contingency, freedom, movement through time, is the power of the negative. It's only when the status quo has been challenged with 
an awareness of what it is not yet, that it is not yet uh, infinite, that it is not yet innocent, that it is not yet um, meaningful. Uh, those negations are the prod that 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 uh, force being into a self-surpassing, self-overcoming uh, forward motion. Okay, I, I can grant that. Sure, that, that seems a, a good analysis of how things actually work. But it, it seems to me he's kind of using a fallacy of equivocation here by using such a loaded term as non-being and connecting it with this kind of ultimate threat of non-existence and meaninglessness. For me to say, gosh, I don't know Telex theology well, I could and should know it better. That's a, if he calls that non-being, that's some sort of actually positive prod toward development, but non-being as, what's the point of studying Tillich? Because everything's going to die and the universe is going to end in a heat death. I, I, <laughs> it's, it, it seems a bit like a cheat to me, I guess, what he's doing here. You know, I remember as a graduate student, <clears throat> I read a critique of Tillich by an analytic philosopher who, on just the very objection that you're making, said all this talk about the power of being overcoming non-being is nothing but a bunch of vacuous bombast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let me let me say a bit more then before you, you definitively answer this question, because I, I've been mostly holding myself back through this. But So I think I discovered this maybe genre of theological discourse in college, but for me it was with Kierkegaard. I, I read at least Fear and Trembling and the Concept of Dread. I think I read one other, but I don't remember what it was anymore. And I, I remember at the time finding it stimulating and exciting, I think, because I'd never read anything like it before. And um, there's something in, in common there with this kind of um, sweeping but 30,000 foot in the air view of the human predicament. And in, here in The Courage to Be, Tell It combines it with the sweeping view of Western intellectual history. It reminds me of when we read Niebuhr last year, is how Niebuhr kind of like sweeps up and tells the entire story, you know, in this, this, this first volume. And um, so I think subsequent to reading those kind of works, I've, I've become suspicious on two levels. One is... Um, Though I recognize that there needs to be a way of talking about the long sweep and development of one civilization that's legitimate, I've often found that when I've read them, and I, I might be taken up to a certain point, but then when I get to a period or thinker that I know particularly well, I am never satisfied with the account and the analysis, which then makes me wonder are all the other accounts and analyses of all the other figures and periods accurate too? Or is this just the, everything has been subsumed under the, the theorist's theory. So I, I, so when, when Tillich does this, just like when Niebuhr did it, I'm a little, mm, I, I'm not sure I really buy this. And even raising the issue about, you know, is the early church really about death and medieval period really about guilt? I have my doubts there, but also I, I have, I think developed much more serious doubts about the 30,000-foot view, such as I saw in Kierkegaard and I'm seeing here with Tillich. There's something about its attempt to be universal and kind of, it's like he's trying to expose the bones of actual all existence, all reality, all creation. And, you know, this is basically how it works. This is why you feel the way you do. And here's how you can cope with it. And... I don't know. There's something so preposterous about it. 
it's it's so divorced from actual human experience, even while it's trying to universally account for human experience. I mean, I've to, to use an analogy, I found this in trying to understand how to write um, powerful, effective fiction. And the counterintuitive truth writers always finally get to is that the more universal you try to make your story, the less it appeals and speaks to anyone. And the more absolutely specific you get, the greater number of people resonate with it and say, yes, this is my life too. And it, you, th you would think it would go in exactly the opposite direction. And so for me, this, this all sort of indicates the fact that, um, which is the ultimate theological critique here, is that you do not need the particularity of the people of Israel or the person of Jesus Christ for anything that Tillich said to work. That it's fundamentally an anti-particularist, specific, actual human life story, even while pretending to be the universal account of human life. So perhaps, you know, you, you've rendered some of the details more intelligible to me, but perhaps my fundamental objection is to this particular genre and discourse's appearance of universality, which I don't think works. And maybe I have just proven myself to be a postmodern and not a modern in the process. <laughs> well, well roared, young lioness. <laughs> <laughs> Let me say this. Um, I think, uh, Tillich, um, you, there's some justice in your critique of Tillich because the whole idea that you can do theology as general ontology, um, what you're calling a kind of theoretical view from 30,000 feet that, it, that understands the logic of everything, right? That I think um, that, that's right. It is problematic for a lot of reasons. But is it really the case that he that he sacrifices the particularity of the Christian message, or is it the case that he is basically an apologetic theologian who's trying to uh, reiterate the truths of Reformation theology in an idiom that speaks to the mid-century Western world? Um, I, I think there's problems with being an apologetic theologian, but to take a more charitable view um, of Tillich's uh, here, I think that we can uh, we can agree um, with the problems of a general ontology as a framework for theology. But if we take the different angle and see that Tillich is actually trying to be an apologetic theologian interpreting the truths of Christianity in a language that's intelligible to the people of the 1950s who are now full of Jean-Paul Sartre and, 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 uh, and, and Simone de, de Beauvoir. Well, okay. I, if that's the case, then actually what he's doing is highly specific and not universal theology. And maybe to speak to his specific audience, he has to pretend to be universal. So I, I can grant that particular historical location. But uh, when you're ready, I will, will get on to my further critique because I have, even more than you, lived in the church that is downstream of generalized ontology and uh, fangless apologetics of uh, pretend um, uh, 
wide view of appeal to the entire culture and it doesn't work. It destroys the church. <laughs> so uh, e even if he was being specifically and apologeticalistically helpful to his time and place, the the um, reception of Tillich, I think, has been an abject disaster. Okay. Uh, that can, you know, I think there's a lot of theologians who would passionately disagree with you about that, but we'll let that pass for the moment. Here, let me, this, I want to read this final set of quotations and ask you if you can detect the, contra the contradiction it contains. Tillich writes in the conclusion of the book, the God of theological theism is a being alongside others and as such a part of the whole of reality. He is a being, not being itself. That's one thought. So that's why we have to look for in absolute faith for the God beyond God. Now the second quotation. A church which raises itself in the message and its devotion to the God above the God of theism, without sacrificing its concrete symbols, can mediate courage which takes doubt and meaningless into itself. It is the church under the cross which can, alone can do this, the church which preaches the crucified, who cried to God, who remained his God, after the God of confidence had left him in the darkness of doubt and meaninglessness. To be as a part in such a church is to receive her courage to be in which one cannot lose oneself and in which one receives one's world." End quote. Well, there's your evangelism campaign. No wonder people are flooding into the mainline churches. <laughs> okay, so in response to this, let me let me tell my my one previous uh, run-in with Tillich. I was in um, seminary. I, actually, I think I was in my graduate school program, and I was a preceptor for the Intro to Systematic Theology class. And one of the professors one day had us read, compare, and contrast a sermon by Bart and a sermon by Tillich. And he clearly, the professor clearly favored the Bart one. And here's how I can summarize the two sermons. Bart's sermon was, God has done everything for us already. So if we're not experiencing it, it's clearly our own fault for not praying and believing enough. So classic gospel leads to law. You know, God did everything. It's your own damn fault if you're not enjoying the fruits of that. <laughs> then the, the Tillich sermon was basically accept the fact that you're accepted, you know, which is kind of the also the punchline of the courage to be. This The sermon was obviously, you know, related to this book that we've just read. And I remember, you know, well, I, I obviously hated the Bart answer, but I hated the Tillich answer, too. Um, and I, I think the um, the professor thought this was the difference between Reformed and Lutheran. <laughs> In this case, I would not accept Tillich as representative of Lutheran. But I remember I was sitting next to one of my classmates who came from a kind of... Um, uh, heavy-handed works righteousness piety evangelical church and the telic sermon like lit him up <laughs> like for him clearly the message of accept the fact that you're accepted uh released him from all these heavy burdens and and maybe that that's what it was like for you too but when he said how much he liked it i of course ungraciously snarled back at him sure if you like justification without jesus and so <laughs> 
to me, you know, one of the the you know the the core tests you learn as a classically trained Lutheran theologian is does any is is what you say necessitated by Christ or can your message work if you excise Christ from it? Um, I, my my uh, my slight emendation to that would would be uh, Christ and the people of Israel. You know, Christ coming out of the people of Israel. I think you have to have both to know that you have an authentically Christian message and. For what I see from that quote you just read, what we have in Tillich instead is like a new and improved Abelard, where Christ is not just the moral example, but he's like the courage example. And so Christ is the instantiation of the basic principle of how to get on in this universe as it is. And therefore, we can, you know, deploy the symbols, as he says, the, the classical theistic religious tradition to, you know, train us in the arts of being Christ-like. But I don't see that Christ himself or the Son of God, uh, much less the people of Israel, is in any way necessary for this case. He's he's only illustrative of the greater principle. And I think it's interesting that that was actually... Um, a concern we had in a very different way in, in uh, Bonhoeffer's Christology. Very good, Sarah. Yes. Uh, I, and, you know, you're, you're kind of speaking very passionately some criticisms of Tillich that I share. And I just to wrap this episode up, I've tried to explain this kind of sympathetically, right? Uh, uh, the, the courage to be. I see the contradiction in the text that I had just read that you can be devoted to the God above the God of theism without sacrificing the concrete symbols. I think that's simply a contradiction. The God above the God yeah. of theism is, is a God beyond symbolization. Um, that's, the, that's the whole point. Um, and um, even the idea of the power of being overcoming non-being or that God is being itself Tillich in, I think, the second volume of the Systematic Theology acknowledged that even this is, is symbolic language. So you kind of finally, this kind of, kind of finally leads to a, a, an ap a radical apophatism. You can't really say anything about God. Um, um, and you're in danger of abandoning all the concrete symbols of the faith. So that would be my first general criticism of Tillich. His doctrine of the symbol uh, was that uh, a particular finite participates in the reality to which it points. That was what how his doctrine of the symbol participates in the reality to which it points. Um, and this is kind of a version of Lutheran sacramental thinking, right? That the bread... The, the particular finite bread of the supper somehow participates in the reality to which it points, which is the risen body of Christ. Um, but that doctrine of the religious symbol is under undermined, it's, it's eviscerated by the radically apophatic doctrine of God beyond God. So that's my first chief criticism of Tillich. Well, amen. My second big criticism of, of Tillich, um, you remember how he mentioned these, uh, that theology knew about the power of being overcoming non-being in the Trinitarian symbolism for the inner life of God. 
I think that's right for him to acknowledge that the doctrine of the triune life, the eternal triune life of God, is the condition for the possibility of creating a world of creatures other than God, and at length for the Son of God to be incarnate and live a truly creaturely and human life in our midst, up to including death and death on a cross, <clears throat> and that the Holy Spirit can be poured out upon sinful uh, people uh, in order to um, bless them and sanctify them through time to eternity. But Tillich does not use this solution, and he defers instead to the supposed ontology of the power of being, overcoming non-being. So he doesn't use the doctrine of the Trinity to solve the problem that he's posed. That would be my second big criticism. And I share with you your criticism of his Christology. I remember when I first read Tillich and as a senior in college, I asked my professor, James Childs, uh, about why he liked Tillich so much, and I complained, just like you, that Tillich's Christology was was um, pretty kind of lacking, it seemed to me. And I remember Childs, Jim Childs, who was always famous among us for using fancy vocabulary, and he said to me, he said to me, yes, I think Tillich's the Christology is somewhat truncated, Tr truncated. And I looked at him and I said, truncated? Does that mean like cut off or something? <laughs> <laughs> cut short or something? And I think to put that point more seriously, Tillich's Christology perfectly illuminates an antecedent situation of common grace. The power of being overcoming non-being is simply the reality that is for Tillich. It is not a grace that initiates uh, um, a new history that redeems and fulfills God's creative purpose. Yeah, there's no apocalypse here. It's a steady state universe of grace. Well, you know, isn't that so interesting, though? In the wartime speeches, we saw Tillich resorting to kinds of apocalyptic thinking. But I think what has happened, Sarah, is that his his faith in the in the German and Christian tradition of Europe uh, has totally collapsed as a result of the Nazi epoch and its horrible crimes, um, and he is confronted with this situation of radical meaninglessness. So he he, he cannot simply re reassert traditional Reformation Lutheran theology. He's got to find ways that articulated in a situation of radical despair. So I wonder how much the, what I perceive as, as how Tillich has been damaging to the American church being that he has all of this context very close to his heart. And, you know, we were the winners and the good guys in that story. And um, so the, the sort of things that he's addressing somehow are, are not hitting quite the target that, that he intended them. Now, I cannot actually prove this. Um, but it is my intuition and understanding, and I, I know I've accumulated some evidence over the years, but I can't lay my hands on it right now, which is that Tillich is the reason why American Lutherans, or at least ELCA Lutherans, will no longer say justification by faith. They all say justification by grace through faith. 
And I think on one level, this is trying to um, counteract the um, uh, evangelical misreading of the Reformation tradition that turns faith into the ultimate good work. And that like you supply God with faith and then he in turn rewards you with salvation or something like that. That's how I how how I've often heard it um, in these evangelical circles. And it is just an ultimate kind of good works. But I think that in the light of the courage to be, if Tillich is indeed the source of this justification by grace through faith, then actually what it has done, at least in the American Lutheran DNA, is altered it so that grace is in fact the generalized grace of the uh, uh, ever-holding steady-state ontology of creation that you just laid out there. And then the the through faith is just kind of this extra um, tag. <laughs> it's like this add-on at the end is like, it's, it's almost like a new propositional um, concession. Like, okay, yes, I acknowledge that the nature of the universe is God's steady graciousness unto us. And I think that has basically hamstrung um, proclamation and evangelism for American Lutherans and simply turned it into a, um, a very convenient belief in the uni- in universalism and the universality of grace and that it's just all all good and we're all fine and because God is going to take care of it anyway, like Bart said, except we're not going to hassle people to actually pray because, you know, that's too reformed and heavy handed. Um, and instead, we'll, we're just kind of you know, be there for, for people like us who who get it. And I, I just think as I see that as kind of the, the Im- implicit, inarticulated, and yet pervasive theology of our denomination, all I can say is this has been a total bloody disaster. And, you know, Tillich may have intended something very differently. And obviously, uh, nobody can be responsible for the reception of their works. I mean, after all, we are fans of Luther, and we know how badly his works have been received and abused. But um, I just, I think... Nice try, Tillich, but uh, we need a completely different point of departure. I would like to just start over. Okay. Well, uh, you're entitled to that, that, uh, that taking that stance after at least trying to work through some Tillich here. Um, I would just point out, though, that it was long before Tillich became influential in America in the 1950s, already in 1920s. H. Richard Niebuhr wrote his book, The Kingdom of God in America, which has the famous conclusion about American liberal Protestantism. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. So I think the problem of cheap grace and the, uh, the theological problem of treating God as an idea rather than as a reality that presses upon us, uh, was there uh, in the American theological DNA long before Tillich came on the scene. Well, that might well be the case, but when did it so radically infect confessional Lutheranism? And I, I, I think that it, Tillich is the, the camel's nose under the tent that brought it in. Well, I think, yeah, I think it's a little bit more dialectical, though, Sarah. I think it was the fundamentalist turn of the Missouri Synod created a reaction. And certainly for me, the Tillich was the first uh, antidote I latched on to uh, against the Missouri Synod's fundamentalism. Um, 
So you have this vapid contemporary uh, um, neoliberal theology in the ELCA uh, as a mirror inverse reflection of the angry, uh, even sometimes it, it, it seems to me to be just downright hateful theology that's perpetrated in the Missouri Synod. Okay, fair enough. But dad, you recovered. <laughs> like you, you were at both extremes and you, you came out in a better place. Well, what is preventing that from happening at a, on a wider scale? Well, I think I think I, I began to perceive, Sarah, the very devolution of the church that you're you're witnessing in your generation. I began to perceive that already in my latter years at Union Theological Seminary, um, um, and uh, I had a strong reaction against it, um, uh, and I I. Uh, Partly, I was helped quite a bit in this by by Karl Barth, uh, and I would say Dietrich Bonhoeffer as well, uh, were modern theologians that helped me a lot. Wolfhard Pannenberg helped me a lot in this situation, but th- these are these are theologians that are intellectually demanding, like Tillich himself, and I think a lot of the uh, decline theologically of American Lutheranism has to do with the low intellectual level um, that is uh, perpetrated in the seminaries. All right. Well, I think I have um, gotten all my complaints out of my system. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, look, look, listeners, we can do better. There's no reason to continue along this trajectory. I'm glad you're listening to this podcast, but please also take and read and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, all counter movements are started by one or two people deciding that there is a more excellent way forward. So let us live that out in our own lives, not just uh, cursing the darkness, but actually lighting a candle. Okay. Maybe this episode today was just a kind of a history lesson. <laughs> like I said, a, a demonstration of the generation gap. All right. Well, next time on the show, we're going to do something with a little more punch and verve. We'll be talking about the Lutheran Pentecostal dialogue. listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.